can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Hello, and welcome to the listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is our weekend edition, and we're going to look at some movies and music. I know that there's been a lot of requests for more of your thoughts on movies and music from what you've already done with Jack. So we're going to go into it for the weekend edition and hope everybody can enjoy their weekend with this. But first, let's go ahead and listen to a few messages. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advised fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. 
we're back. I would like to remind everybody that Victor is available at his website, victorhanson.com. That's H-A-N-S-O-N. And you can join with a subscription or join for a free subscription if you just want to get on the mailing list, or you can get VDH Ultra material by a subscription of $5 a month or $50 a year. So please come join us at the at the website. Victor, how are you doing today? I am doing better. I'm just about strangled long COVID, five months and counting, but uh, I'm smelling the flowers. I'm (laughs) tasting. um, On my drive back from Stanford today, I stopped at Casa de Fruta and I tasted every egg, every oatmeal morsel. And uh, my hearing is becoming better, and my neuropathy is better, and I'm on the verge of suffering COVID euphoria. But I can't say that because if I do, I'll I'll relapse like I have three or four times. But I want to just say, uh, reiterate to all, anybody out there listening that has long COVID, it's a terrible autoimmune, hyperimmune response, but it is self-limiting. And I say that not based on my own experience, because I'm not quite over it, but uh, I've been reading, I read every night an hour, Sammy, on yeah. double blind medical studies. And while they're kind of frightening about some of the um, symptoms, the symptoms seem A, reversible and B, self-limiting. So you have to be yeah. optimistic because it, it will end. And I was at a point in July and August, I thought it never would, but it does end Yeah, and you can fight it. Yeah. But, All right. So let's go ahead and and take a look in a little more depth at some actors that you think are the great actors yeah, we of the about film that industry. That would yeah. Be a good, yeah, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, actors, American, maybe, huh? Yeah, well, definitely. Well, maybe I could just touch on people that are not my favorite, but I think were America's best actors, or, or maybe world actors. And, you know, if you think about it dispassionately, who has the greatest range as acting right now? I'm a, I think it's Gary Oldman. Yeah. If you think about the Churchill portrayal, yep. or that deranged, what was he, the chief of the narcotic squad in the, is it the professional, that movie that he was? Uh, oh, yes, the professional. Was, yes. Yeah, with Jean Reno. Yeah. yeah, that was, I mean, it was scary. And he was brilliant as Dracula. He was in <laughs> the book of Eli as some deranged nut. Yeah, and then he was in uh, uh, True Romance. Remember, as that horrific drug dealer that uh, oh, Christian Slater. Yeah. yeah, he was with that. He was supposed to be. I don't know if he was supposed to be kind of an albino African American or what he was trying to do in that role. But whatever it is, it's uncanny how he assumes personas. Yeah, one of my favorites is uh, Frederick March. I think everybody who's ever seen inherit the win when he plays one of Jennings Bryant or he's in the best years of our life. I like that role so much because he's Mr. Upstanding banker, father, of you know, and a dutiful husband and, and decorated veteran. And yet he's kind of wild the way he drinks and carries on. And yet he's, he's really good. I have a, another favorite. I was thinking maybe Jurgen Prochnow. Oh, for yeah. him and Das Boot. Gosh, oh, perfect. Was yeah, he was like, what did he say that? Remember when they get up and he just looks and they finally get out and they're on the Mediterranean and 
and he says, you have to have good men. You have to have good men. Mm-hmm. Great quote. And he was in D- the first Dune, and he's a brilliant actor. I think he's in his 80s now. But yeah. getting to the ones that I think that I like, and I think a lot of our listeners in my age group like, it's not because in, intrinsically they're all Gary Oldman without talent, but that they have this dark side. In other words, we know them as heroic actors, and yet we get accustomed to their predictable roles. And then every once in a while, they, they get into these roles and, and they reveal a dark side that really contrasts with their image, both professionally and privately as a person. And it, it's kind of eerie. And one of the best was John Wayne. I mean, he started out in that 1939 classic, uh, John Ford's Stagecoach, remember that? Oh, when yeah. he played the Ringo, was it? Yeah, Dallas? he played Ringo Kid. Yeah, Dallas was his girlfriend, Claire Trevor. She was a wonderful actress, but he was a criminal, right? And he's going to leave and he's going to burst out and take off. And then he sees the, the Apaches are coming and he comes back, but he's kind of on the wild side. Yeah. And he's a good hearted person, but he's not the hero of the later uh, John Wayne. And then, you know, that. I'm not a big fan of Howard Hawks. He did some good. He he was the one that did those. Uh, and I know you like them, Sammy, those um, film noir. You always talk about film noir. Yeah. And yeah. Humphrey Bogart. Remember that one? Yeah. The Big Sleep. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and uh, Have and Have Not. He was, I think he directed those. But yeah. uh, gosh, he did Red River in 19, that 1948 Western. Where is it? Yeah. With uh, Montgomery Cliff, wasn't Montgomery it? Cliff and John Wayne is a what's Tom Dunson that character? He's almost mm. pathological. You remember, he wants to hang those people who who deserted and took some of the stuff, and he's gonna he has a shootout. He wants to shoot that person. He tells Montgomery Cliff, "Your problem is he did you didn't kill him." He's got this really yeah. dark dark side to him, and it, he he plays it brilliantly. And of course, at the end, he's going to sort of. Uh, revert back to the good John Wayne, but it's almost as if he's a Dr. and Jekyll person. It's it, it's a brilliant portrayal. And uh, the final one that he did like that was a searcher when he played Ethan Edwards. And yeah. he wants to kill. We talked about that before, Natalie Wood. And he has that same, you know, dark streak. And, you know, the thing about John Wayne is even when he was in his 30s, like that stagecoach, 1938-39, he looked old. I mean, he looked mature. He never looked too young or he never looked like he was small on the screen. That's something that we we look at characterization, we look at dialogue, we look at method acting, but there is something that's intangible. You can't really describe it. They just fill up the screen. And he's been, in Red River, he just dominates. He's he's only in his 40s, you know, and he looks like he's 60. Wasn't he... Six foot five or something. So he, he literally four. dominated. Space. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and he did the same thing in The Searchers. And, yeah. uh, what about, I, what did you think of his portrayal in True Grit? And how do you compare? That was kind Jeff of a Bridges character of his earlier roles. It was good. Yeah. It was That's yeah. when he won an Academy Award. He was good uh, in that Ron Howard movie, The Shootist. Yeah. That was his last, when he had cancer, he sort of playing his own plight. Mm. but uh he he he, he was um he was brilliant in red river and i think i think it was you know it was remarked as everybody was shocked that um 
that he could do that. And nobody yeah. really thought that, you know, he had been typecast as this sort of um, good looking, nice you know, kind of guy. Yeah. And, and all of these Westerns. And then Howard Hawks kind of took him. Yeah. And he made, he, he did something that it was even in some ways that role is more impressive than the searchers. What about the man who shot the Rudy Valance? I thought that was a really good part for him. Yeah, he was he played, kind of a frustrated. It's a really good point. Yeah. He played that same sort of wild person that you can't build the West upon. That was what I liked about the the West. He, you can't build the West on Ethan Edwards or Tom Donovan in Man of Shot Liberty Valance, but you need those people to create the foundations to make the West. And we've yeah. talked about that before. Because they don't play by the rules. He's willing right. to shoot Lee Marvin in the back right. or the side, even though it's against the his own code. Yeah. So I think there was another actor that it's like that, and he's my favorite. One of my favorites was Bill Holden. And I don't know why it was. He always played with a role. His, you know, he was in so many Sunset Strip, wasn't he? And Sabrina, yeah. Sabrina wasn't Sabrina. He? Yeah. yeah. But I liked him that the other side of him and he was that way in billy wilder's uh stolic 17 you remember that yeah he's a wisecracky and everybody thinks he's the snitch and they beat him up and he doesn't give an inch and he's kind of selfish and he's hoard stuff and he yeah. plays on that and yet he's really heroic and he wants he wants to find out who it is and so they don't all get killed and he's he that that was a brilliant portrayal he was you know, all just as a side, all these guys, they die so young. I mean, they die in their 60s. Neil Brenner, Bill Holden, Gary Cooper, they were all, I guess, to keep thin in those days before we knew much about nutrition and fitness, they smoked. They smoked three or four packs a day and then they drank. And they either got esophageal cancer or lung cancer. And it's tragic because they were great actors in their 50s and 60s, but Gosh, and, and that other David Lean was such a good director in that late fifties Bridge on the River Kwai. He he was mm. remember he escapes in the Japanese prison camp. He's home free, yeah. and then they sure ask enough, him to go back, and he makes fun <laughs> of the British and how they <laughs> they were willing to die anywhere, anytime for the Empire. This is silly and it's stupid, and you don't really need him. And he plays that style like seventeen role, and yet he's. Deep down inside, very heroic. So he gets to the key point in the movie, and all he has to do is just say, blow up the bridge. And the guy doesn't do it. And he knows that this young kid is not incapable. He's known that the whole time. And then he knows that he has a choice. And he's if he goes across the river, he's gonna die. And maybe yeah. he has a good and he does. And then Alec Guinness inadvertently falls, but and he gets killed. Speaking of great actors in that movie, Alec Guinness played a really brilliant part. I thought he did in that movie. No, he just was, was so. Yeah, yeah. David Lean was just, when you think of his movies, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. He, he, Alec Guinness was in that. He played King Saud, didn't he? Yeah. He, he, uh, but Alec Guinness, like, he, he plays this part where he's so... I guess British, if I can say that. Know, and he stiff. just wants to make the best bridge possible, even though it's for the Japanese. Yeah, it has no strategic <laughs> sense. It's just all tactical. And it, and that's kind of a American unfair caricature of British, you know. But yeah, we'll that's go with true. It. 
We'll go with it. But But, also uh, stay with that movie because there's that Japanese actor in there. Say, uh, say, I think it was. Oh, I thought it was Hayakawa. Maybe it is. Yeah. Yeah. That played the, um, played the sergeant, whatever, the sergeant or the captain, the guy that led the, that, um, ran the prison camp. He was, that was a brilliant part too. He was, I don't know. I mean, I know our, Female lady listeners are mad at me because um, I'm not talking about great actresses. Mm, but there not, are great ones. We'll there get are to great ones. Yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's, I'm just speaking of Red River. That Remember that hyperactive, uh, is her name Jean Drew? With, you know, that one at the end that she, John Wayne makes a pass at her and she's in love with Monica. And she kind of overacts in the whole yeah. She was really good. But then that. Was- and, my favorite yeah. Bill Holden okay. role was that classic Sam Peckinpah when he was kind of washed up in his 50s. Uh, Bill Holden had been an alcoholic. He, he died. I think he hit his head. You know, he was so uh, he hit his head in his apartment, bled to death. They didn't find him, I think, for three or four days. It was really tragic. And, and in that movie, he's Pike Bishop, the head of the Wild Bunch. He's over over the hill. It's West is over with. The locomotives are there. There's gasoline-powered cars, and the lifestyle that they're used to, it doesn't exist anymore, and they won't quit, and so you know how they're going to end. And he's kind of playing the role that he was at that point in his life, that he'd done these great things, and he's he's very bitter, but he's tough. And you think, just when you think he's a nihilist, he's not. He's idealistic. He's willing to get killed. And he comes up with the idea that he's had it with with, – He's had it with the corrupt federalities, and he's going to um, he's going to go back and wreak havoc on them for killing their friend, yeah. or at least imprison him. And then when they kill him, he goes ballistic. And that was that was uh, Sam Peckinpah's best movie, and he he did wonderfully in that role. I liked him in two. I don't know if it was as well directed, but it was a Michener story the bridge at tokyo re a korean war movie mm. i think it was 54 it was in that area of the time frame of the searchers i think 1954 he was in his mid 30s that's when he really hit stride he's that american that's been in world war ii as a pilot he's a lawyer back i think in colorado and in the war they call him up and i think grace kelly is his wife isn't she and what the hell is he doing there you know what I mean? And he yeah. fly, he flies this terrible mission, and they take out the bridges. They take them out, and he wasn't supposed. Nobody was supposed to make it, and they make it. And then this commander who did the right thing said, "Well, we have fuel and we have bombs, so let's do another secondary target." And they go there, and Bill Holden gets shot down. And then it's like each moment he's going to make it and get back. He doesn't belong there. And then he doesn't, he has enough fuel to get over the hill and then crash and then they'll pick him up and he doesn't quite make it. And then he crashes, but don't worry, Mickey Rooney's coming in the helicopter to rescue him. And then they get shot down and killed, but don't worry, he's got a handgun and then they're going to strafe and keep the North Korean communist. And then that, and then he ends up killed in the ditch. That was that sad. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about Frederick Marsh, but he was that captain. uh, I think he's an admiral, rear admiral or something. George Tarrant was a, was a, that was based on a, a real figure. And he made that famous statement when he gets angry at, at, the, at the, ma- the commander comes back and he says, why did you go to the second? Because he really l- liked Bill Holden. That was his favorite guy. 
Yeah. You know, basically saying, why did you get him killed when he did the mission? And the guy tries to tell him, look, I don't play favorites. We have missions and we have secondary missions. We win the war by doing the job and then we keep doing it. And he died. And I understand that. But it was a good mission. <laughs> and then Frederick Marsh kind of looks out. You remember when he says, where do we get such men? And he talks mm -hmm. about. And I think Reagan, who was, uh, I think he was Bill Holden's best friend. He really was. He said he gave a really good uh, little eulogy or a statement that when Bill Holden died, it, it, it's hard. To, Bill Holden was a conservative, and yeah. uh, Reagan took that line, or maybe Peggy Noonan did when they were talking about the boys of Point Lecoq and all that, and said, "Where do we get such men?" And they yeah. made fun of him. They said, "Ah, he's just living. He's just regurgitating a Hollywood line." But it was a great Hollywood line, so why not? Yeah, it needed a second use. But you know what I just saw the other night? That movie, The Unforgiven. And which um, one? You were, the Burt uh, the the Lancaster. Yeah, the Burt Lancaster. Oh, that's Audrey Hepburn, huh? Yeah, but also, you know, speaking Man, of everybody really, was in that. I know. Speaking of great women actor, that I think her name is Lillian Gish. Is yeah, that her Lillian name? Lillian Gish. Yeah, she was brilliant. Yeah, she gets shot she, and killed in that movie. She's wonderful. Yeah, she does. She did yeah. a great job as the mother. Hiding the fact that the young girl was uh, Native American. The only problem with that movie is that, uh, that Audrey Hepburn doesn't quite look Native American. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's problematic. Didn't but... what's his name direct that? I got to check that. It was John. What's his name? I don't know. Uh, on that. the famous director, but uh, it was a great movie and it was underrated. Yeah. Burt Lancaster kind of went out on his own a lot. Yeah, you know, and I think he did that as his own movie company. John Huston, maybe I think that's. Oh yeah, it was a John Huston film. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's he right. was a brilliant guy, kind of crazy. Yeah, Burt Lancaster always looks really fit in all of his movies. That's what yeah. I always notice about him. Well, he was a gymnast, <laughs> acrobat, everything. <laughs> it's really, really incredible. Yeah, at the he he was, he's kind of a. He was really good in Elmer Gantry. That was a brilliant movie, too. Yeah. You know who else is a really good um, woman actress, female actress, is um, that Myrna Loy in The Best Years of Our Life. That's one of her roles, but she's always oh, really. She's funny. She has such a, she's a, she did that perfectly. That's the ideal. I mean, she was really running the whole family while he was gone. Yeah, exactly. And then she was always didn't take him too seriously when he was outrageous, but she never, she never ankle bit him. She was so loyal to him. She was like saying, she was almost saying to the camera, yes, he's nutty and he's a drunk now tonight, but this guy is a war hero and he's a banker. And he's a good man. And I'm going to stand by him. That's what I like about her. She reminded me of my mom. She was that kind of way with my dad. Mm. And I, you know, when you said, I just remembered, you said Hirokawa, Sesu Hirokawa. That was yeah. Yeah, that's You're right the about that. So bridge that over was, the river cry. Yeah. So Bill Holden was, gosh, it's such tragic that he died so well. Yeah. And then you know another guy who has that dark side that I really like is Denzel Washington. I I, I think he's brilliant. And he, you remember in Glory when he first that was his first big role. Mm -hmm. He was that kind of angry black soldier that didn't go thought you know they're using us and this and this and then he ends up being the most one of the most heroic. And uh, you can see both sides of his attitude. But I know a movie that that people didn't appreciate, <laughs> even though it made a lot of money. Everybody. And, you know, another guy who's brilliant was Tony Scott. Yeah. 
remember, you know, we all think of Ridley Scott, but Tony Scott did Man on Fire. And I think that was the second remake. It's much better than the original. Yeah, it was much better. People didn't like that movie because of the gratuitous violence. Do you remember when he says? Well, yeah, that's true. Time? (laughs) Time? (laughs) I I have all the time in the world. You? (laughs) You have 45 seconds, I think it was. He created that scene where you walk and the fire is behind you. That's so many scenes now where you walk away and you you leave. My favorite. Yeah, my my favorite part of that movie was when the the he he blows up the um I don't know nightclub and all those people are outside yeah, and, they're the still, and they're, and they're all dancing and <laughs> oh that really barbaric scene where he cuts that guy's fingers off. That guy was a great actor, that Mexican actor, but yeah. he and then he just says, you know, you're gonna perfect. And then he says, professional, professional, professional. I'm so sick of professional, 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 yeah. professional. And he, that guy that played the crooked cop under the bridge was brilliant. They had some great actors yeah. from Mexico in that movie. They really, also had the Italian guy, right? Um, guy, oh, guy, Carlo Giannini or whatever. Giannini, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was brilliant. He was, not, he was supposed to be this horny over the hill guy. I don't know how that guy lived so long. I think he's still alive in his 80s. He was a chain yeah. smoker. And he was yeah. a brilliant. He did Seven Beauties when he was young. was a brilliant and, movie. But yeah, Man on Mickey, Fire is a classic. Mickey Rourke was in that, too. A comeback yeah. part for <laughs> he him. He played that crooked lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, Tony, I think, didn't Tony Scott uh, direct True Romance? But yes. Tarantino, that was a brilliant movie. Yeah. <laughs> that was such... And uh, but anyway, and the other one that critics didn't like, especially, and I'm just thinking it was, I don't know, six or seven years later was The Book of Eli, you know, Book of Eli. Yeah, I thought that was a great movie. I did I liked too. It had, had that same duality in Denzel Washington that you saw in Man on Fire. You remember yeah. uh, Christopher Walken, they say, What is he going to do? And he said, uh, He's in. <laughs> He's an expert in death. He's going to create his masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the same thing in Book of Eli. He's kind of, you don't know whether he's a divinity or he's been divinely inspired or where he got his superpowers or what the extent of them are or whether he's kind or mean. And then at the end, sort of like Man on Fire, you find out he's a saintly character, sort of like John Wayne and the Searchers and at the end, Howard Hawks. Yeah. Uh, Red River. But, you know, I was thinking as we were talking about these, there were some really good, um, I don't know, what the, I guess you'd call them character actors, but Ben Johnson pops up in all of those John Ford Western. And he, that was his greatest role was one of the Wild Bunch, the final four with Warren Oates. Yeah. And Ernest, that was Ernest Borgnine's greatest role since Marty. Yeah. And uh, was it Edmund O'Brien in oh, there yeah, as well? He, yeah. He was, he was great in that role as the drunk and the old man. And he he kind of even surpassed the John Ford man, man of shot Liberty Balance when he was the uh, the editor, remember? The, yeah, that's right. He was. The he was the newspaper guy in that Yeah, movie. he was. And, and uh, John Carradine was a great actor. He was in he was the noble Southern gentleman and stagecoach, remember? And his yeah. greatest role was I came here with a carefully prepared speech. <laughs> that's in Man of Shot Liberty Balance. Balance. And that's then he right. crumples it up and throws it down. They pick it up and there's nothing there. <laughs> he was a great and he was a wonderful actor. He had a lot, you know, three children that were really good. And 
Walter Brennan was another great actor. You know, when I when I was um, a student, as a graduate student at Stanford, I met this guy who I went to, I was living in the first year in the university graduate resident. And there was this guy who was kind of a film student, right? And he and his girlfriend were there and I was talking to him. And he said to me, because I was talking about Westerns, because I, I was... Um, and he said, uh, well, you know, Stanford has a great tradition of Westerns or great actors. And I said, no, they don't. You know, what's your favorite <laughs> actor that was in those, uh, you know, the you, alien movies that she was. Oh, uh, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, she. I think he, you know, I guess he was mentioning her. I said, name one. And then, you know what he did? He said, what? he said, Richard Boone. You know, <laughs> half gun will travel. The guy in Ombre is you got pretty oh, hard bark. That great role, and he goes into that into the the uh, the stage station. He points that guy out. I'm not talking to him. I'm talking to you. Or I'm going to take your ticket, <laughs> or you can go outside. And he he was uh, gosh, he was a brilliant actor, and he was a Stanford student, Stanford student, and he was a war hero. So I was kind of amazed. And I said, name another one, thinking the guy was lying. He said Jack Palant. I said, no, he wasn't. Jack Palance, and he, he said he was Stanford. a war hero, and he went yeah. to Stanford. They all got really close to graduating, and oh, Jack okay. Palance was was a Stanford student. Oh, and, wow! You know, remember he played Wilson. <laughs> you know, one thing we didn't talk to is in the fifties when these were made, how we demonized the South, but Hollywood, which was mostly left wing people. They were desperately looking for an underdog, a victim of northern white uh, oppression, right? Yeah. In a weird, kinky way, they glorified the lost cause and the southern rebels. So in all these movies, the evil guy is the Yankee and the noble, heroic, solitary figure fighting against the odds is the ex-Confederate. Ethan Edwards, remember, he's, uh, I don't know what he was, Quantrell Raiders or something like that in The Searchers. I think that... Uh, and and that was, you know, he was supposed to, you're not supposed to quite know what he was doing. But in Shane, remember Shane was a Confederate? And he said, yeah. you're a no good Yankee liar mm -hmm. to Wilson. Because he said, remember he said, then uh, all of them were trash. Lee, too. And that's, that's when right. they shot the other guy. So anyway, to finish that story, I remember I told that guy, okay, you got two. There's no more, you know, that played in western he said oh yes hank warden remember that guy old mose that was in the searcher that always plays like he was crazy and he's oh yeah and he plays yeah. in all of those john ford he's the john ford stock company actor yeah cattle, you know cattle company or whatever they called them he went to stanford and he was in engineering and he graduated and he was a, i think he lived to his 90s he was a brilliant actor wasn't festus from gunsmoke of uh stanford alumni too i don't know Fest I, don't, I thought I festus know. was no festus? maybe not no remember from gunsmoke the i better be careful crazy little guy? you've been right all along <laughs> i thought Tim curtis was, was his name right yeah yeah exactly he, he, he had a wonderful um he had a wonderful vo uh, voice yeah i like that name you know um festus corkius festus was a um um a governor of Judea. <laughs> I just remembered that.
<laughs> Victor, let's take a break and come okay. back and talk a little bit more about movies and then we'll turn to music. We'll be okay. right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back, Victor. So um, I think the only person I haven't heard you talk about that I'm kind of fascinated with is Dana Andrews. I thought he had some really good parts. And I understand that he was very shy and that it was, you know, so he got on stage. It was not very comfortable for him. That was my yeah, I think he was. At least he lived a little older. He was a chain smoker. I think he died in his mid-80s or early 80s. But yeah. He was so good in um the Oxbow Innocent. Remember he's hung in that? It's tragic. Yeah, and he's he tries to plead. He's so rational, and these nutty people, they're kind of like the woke people. And yeah. uh, wow, the best years of our lives. He was remember he was trying to do everything right, and he was so proud that he had been on. I put the bombs right on the target, and he had this uniform, and he was married to a trashy wife. And, yeah, and she was and, like, "You're no good, and you're boring, and I'm getting out of here." She went through all of his carefully saved money. Yeah, <laughs> he was everywhere. He played in the Battle of the Bulge, Devil's Brigade. He was—he was a great actor. He was a, they always said that he and Bill Holden were very good people. You know, you mentioned—we mentioned, we mentioned um, Jack Palance. He was in another movie I just thought of, and that was Monty Walsh. That was a great movie, the first one. Tom Selleck did the remake, but it was yeah. uh, Lee Marvin, and they—they they, it was the end of the West, and they're all in this failing. Last generation cattle ranch and Jane John Moreau Jane Moreau was in that she was really yeah. good. The director was really good too, Freyer or whatever his name was. But I liked Monty Walsh. It was a it was a wonderful movie. And, yeah, uh, you know who you forgot to talk about from the Wild Bunch is that I know because there were so many great parts in that movie, but that Emilio Fernandez who oh, plays Mapachi. Ma- Ma- <laughs> He, you know, he was uh, <laughs> he was sort of the Gary Cooper of Mexican cinema. Yeah, and he was he's in he's in another Peckinmaw movie too. He's brilliant, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, that one scene they cut it out of the the director's cut where he's at that train and he he's with that little boy and oh, he's yeah. braving fire and and the little boy wants to be like Mapachi. Yeah, and, and then there's there's so many sick lines in that movie when. When the guy's girlfriend is with Apache and is it uh, Warren Oates said, look at that general with his finger, tongue in your girl's ear. You know, it's just Sam Peckinpah lived in Corsgold. And as I said in an earlier broadcast, his uh, 
brother was Denver Peckinpah, a superior court judge, and my mom was one too. But she got to know him. He carried a gun, as I mentioned, with Jack under his robes. And they had a little cattle ranch. And Ride the High Country might have been his, you know, his breakthrough movie, but it might have been his best movie. Yeah. And uh, Warren Oates was in that. It was. Yeah, a, he, you know, that Sam Peckinpah always has these kind of really, I, I guess that the only word we have for it is low life characters that say some really sick things well, every once I mean, in a while. There is no tougher so, area, believe me, than the Sierra Valley foothills. And whether you go to Prather or Dunlap or Horse Gold, that's sort of the, uh, it was originally people who from Oklahoma diaspora retired up there because land was cheap, you know, and you could build up there without much regulation. And then it became sort of a white flight area. But I go up there a lot to Huntington Lake and Shaver. And uh, when I go in some of those markets, you know. And. uh, my and friends you know, at Stanford would not believe that. Uh, I mean, they demonize the Stanford professor at not the Hoover, but the Stanford professors. They demonize the white class, but they would be terrified of them. You know who he found to play that part, and other people <laughs> caught on to it too was Struther Martin. <laughs> he was so. Well, he brilliant. was. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he's a certifiable genius. He was in a lot of uh, Peck and Paul movies. Yeah, uh, he, he was brilliant too. So he and LQ, LQ Jones. LQ yeah. Jones, gosh. Yeah. Pat uh, Garrett and Billy the Kid, LQ Jones was in that, that scene. Slim Pickens was another one, another Swede from Kingsburg. Warren Oates. Yeah. I was a little boy. <laughs> I was eight years old. And um, I went out in 384. My grandfather broke horses. He was a Swede. And there was this big, heavy guy that was there. And he was on his way to the Woodlake Rodeo to be the clown which wasn't far from my grandfather's farm. And my dad said to my grandfather, his father, well, dad, you know, he's a big star now. Well, you know, I don't know that, but he's a hell of a horseman. And he, his name was not Slim Pick. It was, he was Swedish. Yeah. I think he later moved from Kingsburg to Texas and got dropped the Swedish accent, got a Southern accent, but it was Slim Pickens. Oh, wow. And I met him when I was like eight years old. I didn't, and wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was because it was right in a year or two, he became famous in Dr. Strange Love is riding the atomic bomb down to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> that was another great role. He says, you know, he's talking to the crew and James Earl Jones there, and we have no we do not discriminate on the basis of race, religion, or national origin, as they're all going to their death. And he hands out <laughs> condoms and I don't know, chocolate bars. And it's just speaking it's, of great actors, George C. Scott was so brilliant. <laughs> he was he played yeah, hospital. He, and then, of course, Patton. He really created and he was very young for that Patton role. I think he was only 49 or 50. He looked he had made he he was just supernatural. All those people, you know. The British are better actors as a whole than Americans. You can see that when you compare an American HBO to, say, Game of Thrones or something. But when you get a good American actor, a brilliant American actor, like, you know, George C. Scott or Bill Holden or Denzel Washington, they're just as good, but they're yeah. entirely different. Yeah. I, you know, I used to really like Robert De, De Niro and Al Pacino because they were great actors, but 
the more that I watch their movies, the more that they kind of overact, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah, they overact and the same part, you know, that crazy nutty. Yeah, when you, uh, look, when you, when you look at the brilliant uh, portrayal of Michael in The Godfather, the early Godfather 1 and 2, and then you compare that role to a brilliant portrayal in Heat. It's yeah. just Al Pacino is just overacting in here. Ah, what the hell? He's gone. He's through the coup. And he said, yeah. oh, ow, ow. Who, 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 who? You an owl or something? He starts yelling. But in Michael, it's like deadly, silently underacted. Yeah. So it's 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 more effective. But yeah, George C. Scott was, you know, you know he was, you know, Christopher Walken was a great character. He would never be able to have that scene. Uh, in true romance, that kind of racist scene when he's talking to um, oh, to the father of uh, the main guy, um, yeah. Chris. Um, uh, I want to say uh, Christian Bale, but it's not Christian Bale. It's um, no, it's his dad. No, I know, but that's a not, really the really Scott movie. Yeah, yeah. the true Chris, romance. Yeah, it's it's Christian. It's. Uh, What's his name? The guy that was in um, Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper. Oh, was, yeah. It wasn't Dennis Hopper. Yeah, he was playing <laughs> so the dad. Yeah. He starts talking about eggplant. And, and Christopher Walken plays psych, you know, psycho roles very well because he's probably a psycho. And, and, <laughs> Be careful about that. Well, I don't mean that in a bad sense, but he's yeah. got the ability to scare people. Let's and, turn subject, Victor, to yeah, okay. musicians. I, I gotta stop because that? I'll go on forever. I, <laughs> um, we wanted to talk about. Um, you know, we, we talked see about all music the, already, Sammy. But, with, but I, back, you can go. Yeah, but I again. wanted. I wanted to talk about musicians who are not of your political bent and that ah. you like anyway. So ours gratis. Yeah. Ars gratis artis. Ours great ours grata artis. Art for the sake of art. Art, yes. yes. And okay. are there? Yes, there's a lot of them that I have weird taste as I got letters from our chat Be conversation. Because I you know bet what, Bruce Springsteen is one of yeah, them. Yeah, well, I, I very left to, wing. I thought that Nebraska album was, was brilliant. And even the one after 9-11 was brilliant, but I got tired. The point I'm making is he he took that New Jersey uh, earthy working class guy, and if you look at how he acts or lives or his politics, he's an elitist, a multi, a billionaire elitist, right? He charges what four hundred fifty dollars a ticket, uh, or more than that, two thousand dollars now for the elite seats. But he always wow. lectures everybody. But he, that Nebraska album was really good. It was brilliant. It was it was just wonderful. Another speaking of people I can't stand is mm. what's his name? Roger Waters, the guy that was in Pink Floyd, but for a brief period, maybe not a brief period, but for years, Pink Floyd was the rock band. You remember in college? Oh, you're yeah. younger than I am, but it no, was but they that, it was that, still, yeah. That wish you were here. Wish you were here. Can't yes. tell heaven from hell. <laughs> I think he had the record, didn't he? All of our listeners will correct me. I think he had the record for the largest concert ever in person. Roger. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, it was 400 yeah. and 500,000 people in Germany, maybe in Berlin. Yeah. And uh, he's an anti-Semite. He's always attacking Israel, no matter what. He attacks Israel, Israel. He tries to get people to boycott Israel. He won't play in Israel. He calls them 
it just makes me sick. Yeah. He's obsessed with Jews. He's anti-Semitic. And then he hates the United States. I was reading the other day about prominent people and prominent celebrities that have kind of become uh, like Steven Seagal, you know what I mean? That not he's not prominent, but people we know in the pu- in public life that have become fanatics of uh, Putin supporters. Yeah, and he's been defending. I think he's even gone on Russian t- uh, Today. He defends Putin and says, wow. you know, he didn't do anything wrong, and China doesn't do anything wrong by if it takes back Taiwan, we're the cause of all the problems. But that does not mean that that. Uh, wish you were here and the wall and all those not good songs. You know, another weird group that is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> was, was that four non blondes at that in the 80s, late 80s, yeah, and they have yeah. what's what's up? What's, what's up? Their one song. Did they do any other songs? <laughs> Linda Perry, I think it was it was a, it was one of the first lesbian bands. Yeah, And I remember I was teaching at Fresno State and that movie came on and they had the first videos, you know, like what was the name of that where they had videos on TV? MTV. It was called MTV. It was called MTV. And she had a stovepipe Lincoln type hat. Yeah, I love that hat. (laughs) Yeah, he had Wicked Witch of the West kind of stockings with big stripes. Yeah, cool. And and, uh, (laughs) what I like about that song was... Jackson Brown, we'll get to him, I suppose, another guy that's politics. Yeah. But I like songs that completely, the Moody Blues did that too. They have one rhythm or musical score, and then almost immediately they just stop and they go into another entirely different, you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Song. And they did that with that What's Up, you remember at the very end? Yep. They just slow it down and it becomes... Um, it just becomes a completely different song. And yeah. that, I don't think they ever had one other song that made it. I, I'm I think people. you're right about that. I think that was it. And then, you know, <laughs> I, I just want to shout revolution and all that. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's a, I want favorite a revolution. And That's right. I'm on my hill. I'm on my way up my hill of hope. <laughs> the lyrics are tried, but there's something about that. The music and her voice. that's very engaging. Yeah. And uh, another, you know, I've, I went to two or three, my kids buy tickets, the Jackson Brown concerts in Hanford or Fresno. Yeah. You went to a concert where he insulted everybody in the valley. You know, they. Yeah, I was he, at that concert too. Didn't oh, he say yeah. something like, what do you, they were yelling at no, him? They all, they all, he had all these new, you know, he wanted to be creative. So he didn't want to just play the pretender, right? Yeah, that album, and but they were all yelling for the pretender, yeah, pretender, pretender, and he said, <laughs> "Load out, run, said, running on empty." And then he he said, finally this isn't says, a goddamn to him, rodeo." <laughs> 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 what are you people? This isn't a rodeo in Hanford. Right. And, kind of, and, and then he kind of stormed out a little bit. But it was he—he was—he's a very good performer, and the pretender was sort of like all of the songs that he's a true revolutionary and everybody's sold out. And, yeah. but I, the, he's a good example. I, I play him all the time. I listen to all of his music. I can't stand his politics. Yeah. And I think even Johnny Cash plays some of, played some of his songs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's, a, he's another example, but you know, in my defense, if you think about mo- songs that I grew up with, 
I was born in 1953 and everybody listening, we had no choice because every single music was politicized in the 60s and 70s. So every single, it is that way today. The only people, when we think of people who are conservative that sing, no. Eric Clapton, maybe? Just country singers. Yeah, I don't think so. Country <laughs> some singers. of them are not, but some of the Clint Black is definitely. I think he's moderate. Uh, he's one of my favorite. That's singers. true. He's yeah. one, I've, I've known him and he's one of the nicest people in the world. Anybody ever has a chance to listen to Clint Black? He's his personality, his values. He's just a saintly character. I really like him. I, I've never. Mm-hmm. It goes back to what Jurgen Prochno said. You have to have good men to be around. You can't do it. I was thinking that the other day of that quote just came into my head when um, he said that because, you you know, we're into this great, we reject in graduate school, they always make fun of Carlisle's great men theory, you know, great man theory. He wrote that 1840 essay on heroes basically saying without, you know, without Napoleon, you wouldn't have this. And without Elizabeth, you wouldn't have. And he was right. But, you know, Marxist bottoms up history says that history is made by the masses, the youngest. And I kind of bought into that in a sense, not Marxism, but the other Greeks was kind of written as the unspoken farmers and the shadows created the Greek city state. And they made Pericles responsible and they they gave they gave they were responsible for Pericles. They excuse me. And Euripides. And, but. There's something to it. There really yeah. is. That these individuals, you have good men and, and you and take away George Patton and the third army is like Courtney Hodges first army. I'm not taking away from the first army. You take away Billy Sherman and the army of the West is not going to take Atlanta and it's not going to go in the Carolinas and Lincoln's not going to get elected if they don't yeah. take Atlanta. Yeah. And anybody, but, you know, when U.S. Grant to- says, get them tomorrow at Shiloh or he's at, um, Cold Harbor, the wilderness. Said, I'm so tired of hearing what Bobby Lee is going to do to us. You worry about what we're going to do to him. Nobody would have done that. Mm. After Antietam, you know, McClellan retreated. Grant, after he took comparable losses in 1864, he, he attacked. They couldn't believe it. Yeah. But people do matter. Without Lincoln, I think we would have had two Americas, two separate countries. Yeah, that's probably Korea. true. Yeah. So one, one person, without Hitler, without Mao, without Stalin, you have 100 million people maybe alive. Yeah, absolutely. People but back to difference. the back to the music, you forgot one person I thought you were going to mention because I was kind I of anticipating of you, but Neil Young, speaking oh, my, of bad politics, but my great My whole family, I, my, I have a twin brother, idolized him. And my other two did as well. So I grew up with Cowgirl in the Sand and the first album, you know, Cinnamon Girl and, yeah. and Heart of Gold. But then they got, you know, Southern Man, Southern Ohio, Man. Ohio, and Ford Ed in Ohio. Yeah, what was that? Con- I don't know if it was a conflict, but the exchange between... Neil Young with that Alabama, Southern man, that? and no, it was um, Leonard Skinner wrote the yeah, their song Alabama or something. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Say, what was yeah the... they mentioned in my name? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in that song. go back or take your go back. I don't know. Yankees. Go back to go back to Canada or something. Yeah, like that. They, they, I think they they made up though, as I remember. Uh, I used to know the psychodramas of sixties people, but yeah, I, I and then. He Neil Young was weird though because during the Reagan era, 
he kind of made a momentary flip and he started to support Reagan's idea that remember Reagan ran on not giving back the Panama Canal and uh, you had yeah. this ridiculous situation where John Wayne who had been married to three Panamanians I think or Central American was doing these commercials to give back the Panama Canal and then you had Neil Young a Canadian he mouthed off and said why give it back they stole it for you know that kind of stole yeah. a pair and square joke and and then he just went back he, he took a big hit and he went back and he he be, he suffered from trump derangement syndrome he had uh drug addicts he i i i wasn't fond of him to be candid because one of my favorite actresses was a minor actress that had a moment of brilliance was carrie snodgrass remember her Yes, it wasn't beautiful, but she had a certain charm about her on screen. He married her, and I think contributed to her drug demise. Mm, and not that yeah. you can blame anybody for a person who self destructs with drug because it is a personal choice. But he he wasn't helpful. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and so yeah. I like uh, you know another person, Roy Orbison. He had the same. We mentioned that before. He had a strange fixation with singing beautiful songs about being rejected by women that didn't reciprocate his loyalty or affection and, <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> and, and um sad though you know it, it's sad that generation of brilliant actors and actresses is completely unknown to youth today mm. and there's been such a decline i mean if you take actors that have stage presence but they're not great act actors themselves and you compare that generation's version and this generation say take gary cooper he could sound wooden but you know what i mean when the dialogue and sergeant york or something but man when you have his presence on the screen on high noon or mr deeds goes to town or mr smith goes oh that was jimmy stewart excuse me it's mr deeds goes down but anyway what i'm getting at is that uh you compare him to brad pitt who's not a good actor but has stage presence right yeah but Brad Pitt is no Gary Cooper no oh, no another actor we didn't mention that had moments of brilliance I like him too is and I should have mentioned him I just thought of him you know we were talking about one of the ingredients of a great actor is that he's a tragic hero or almost a nihilist or an anti-hero in certain roles like John Wayne, as we mentioned, and Denzel Washington and Bill Holden. But Clint Eastwood was that way. And his greatest movies were not when he was the hero. His greatest movies were good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> He's just cruel to Tuco, you know, Eli Wallach. Yeah. It's just absolutely gratuitous to kill. And then The Unforgiven, where he's kind of a pathological murderer. And he makes that amazing transformation. As an the only problem I have that movie, he's incompetent. He can't shoot. He's tentative. And then he gets drunk and goes full ballistic murder at the end. And he says, I'm going to burn down your town. And he executes uh, Gene Hackman. And he's, he just transfer, transforms himself from an incompetent to a skilled marksman and killer. He says, I'm going to burn down your city. And, and that side of Clint Eastwood, when he when he reveals it, it's just he, he has a, a way of that. He's really... I liked some of the movies that he directed that Gran Torino was really that interesting. Was another, that was one of his best movies. Yeah. He yeah. Was, yeah. He got criticized for that because of the anti-Asian remarks. 
we're in this yeah. age that if you play something and you say something, you can't separate fiction from reality, supposedly. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but it was, I don't know. Another actor who had an elements, he played the nice guy all the time, Sidney Poitier, you know, Lilies of the Field. And, but when he had some of those um, in the heat of the night and he, he had a weird, um, what was it? It was a John Newson movie with uh, Tony Curtis and their escape convicts and they're chained together and they're both racist. But he had a wild, tough streaks. Everybody, you know, Sidney Poitier did. That's why he was a great actor. Yeah. But in the heat of the night, didn't he, that guy that played his opposite. Yeah. Oh my God. He was really incredible. He was, yeah. He, that guy was a great job. He he was very underrated in Waterloo. He played, he, you know, he was, he was just brilliant in Waterloo. He was Napoleon, kind of a corpulent Napoleon. Mm, And he was, yeah, he was, he wasn't actually a, a flaming liberal. He was ambiguous politically. He was, he was, yeah. uh, I don't know, he was, I don't know what's going to happen to American film because it's got, you know, the streaming and television is not television and all of these, it, the, the media and Hollywood has become so politicized now. Not that it always wasn't, but when you had, say, the 50s and you had Ely Kazan on one side and John Wayne and Ward Bond on one side. And then there was the other guys on the left. And there was at least there a difference of opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now there isn't. It's just it's just a chorus of yes men and women. Same thing with academia. They're used to when I was even when I was at UC Santa Cruz, there were a few. I had a brilliant French professor, John Hummel, and a brilliant political science professor named Carl Lamb. And they were conservative. Yeah. Um, I think you said you don't know what's going to happen to cinema. I think big cinema is on its way out. I mean, even the theaters like Regal Cinema, I just noticed the other day, is filing for bankruptcy. They're, people are just not going to the big screen anymore. Hard to know. Yeah. Grand. It, I think part of it is that they're, they're, they're incapable of making a film experience an epic or anything that's positive or moving. Everything is a psychomela microdrama, and it's always about a transgendered ambiguity or a gay person, or it's some very good looking young person that's an empty airhead and they're a superhero. And we're supposed to think, I wanna watch this computer animation, this model not get dirt on her face, or this guy you know, blow up stuff yeah. without getting soot anywhere on him. And he's super, but he can't speak. He has no character, he has no, nuance and yeah. who wants to watch that and who wants to watch you know either joe perfect minority or perfect gay guy or perfect feminist or bicoastal elite who uncovers a corporate plot to poison the well or to push cigarettes down people's mouths or something and then they expose and these are people who are playing it people who are funding it and people who are making the movie are all corporate people yeah and we're supposed to think wow thank you for that crusading movie that it, but it's all about politicizing the genre it's not arts for art's sake and nobody wants to watch it and i think it streams into a larger phenomenon in our culture where the so-called chumps and deplorables and irredeemables and clingers have i talk about that ad nauseum but they have consciously dropped out and they don't 
participate. They say, you know what? I'm not going to go to a Hollywood movie. I'm not going to, I am not going to the movies. I am not going to watch the NBA. I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl and maybe not, especially not the halftime show. And I am not I'm going, going to, I'm going to play my electronic games. <laughs> no, I think they just think these people hate us. They hate us in Hollywood. I'm not going to read the New York Times. I'm not going to read the Washington Post. I'm not going to turn on the network news. I just had it with these people. They hate us. They make fun of us. They're stupid. They're unimaginative, and they get their moment when they have the Senate, the House, and the Biden administration, the so-called best and brightest, and they're the stupidest and the worst. And everybody said, you know what? I'm going to stay home and make my, <laughs> make my house a fortress or a castle so I can do anything I want right at home. And I'm going to, if they want to self-segregate from me, I will not patronize them. They boycott, 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 boycott. Well, maybe I'm going to boycott. And that's an anger that hasn't been tapped. Yeah. And, and I'd probably... Cool, to be fair, part of it is that the splintering of all of these genres. So, you know, three network channels become 700, right? And the net network news becomes 50 cable news so it's hard to get a collective uniform genre anymore because there's so much choice and yeah and selections and which is probably good right it yeah. can be but there was something to say you know on a saturday night the movies when everybody got around the television or you watch gunsmoke or even lawrence welk or something there was a familial community experience and i remember when i was at I know nobody would believe this because, you know, but you'd go to school on a Monday morning and you talk about the Smothers Brothers Hour or you talk about Banana. Did you watch Bonanza or Smothers Brothers? And people talked about that common experience and or they would talk about a particular movie that they went to see. Everybody was talking about The Godfather. Everybody saw it. Everybody saw it, the movies. Everybody, you know, a horror movie. They, they were they did this and now it's all i don't know what it is it's it's um something happened oh about 2008 i think that's something with the obama administration it was hyped up as a it was like biden's hype it was going to be a unifying ecumenical experience and it really got michelle obama who was a bitter angry person and she'll resent that that that's what she was and is and the more that she's successful, the more money, prestige, power, privilege that she accrues, the more that she thinks it's unfair that somebody has some more than she does. And then Barack Obama, he, he created this term diversity. I think I keep pounding that term. Before, it was a historical binary between African-Americans and the so-called white majority. And it had been worked through with slavery and then a century of Jim Crow and 50 years of affirmative action, but everybody understood what was at stake and what was happening. And he came in and he racialized that. And he said, no, there are white people and white people are Italians or darker complected uh, Arabs or they're, they're Armenian, but they're white. And you can be a multimillionaire Sikh, you can be a Korean dentist, you can be an African-American movie star, but you're all oppressed by them. And diversity is now the main thing. So even though 
you don't qualify for 1990s affirmative action, you can get preference because you're an India from India or you're from Argentina or you're a very wealthy fourth generation Japanese American and you're going to be the 30% versus and then that was almost this you know, they keep talking about the great replacement. Conservatives keep talking about the great, oh, the conservatives are worried about the white race. The great, no, no, that, that's that's what they called. They came up with the new demography or demography is destiny. They were the ones under Obama saying, you know what, we're going to open the borders, going to get rid of this toxic whiteness. Joy Reid said, oh, my gosh, today is the day when California is no longer a, a white majority state. And so they pounded that. And yeah. that polarized the country. And the idea that I, Victor Hansen, or you, Sammy Wing, because of the color of your skin, has one iota of common political allegiance with a Nancy Pelosi or Gavin Newsom is absurd. Absurd. I would yeah, tell you that my three closest friends it's at the hoover institution were tom soul shelby Steele, and Kyron skinner and i have a lot more allegiance to them than i would say you know 120 million white people who are bicultural elites yeah Most you, that way can we hold that right there victor and take a break and then yeah. come back and i had actually a question on yeah. the topic of um the black crime rate so let's yes. come back and oh, that's a after these message landmine. i gotta be careful on them. okay we'll be right back okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back, and I'd like to invite everybody to join us on your favorite social media. We are at Victor V.D. Hansen on Facebook and V.D. Hansen on um, Twitter. We also are V.D. Hansen on Getter, and I think we're Victor Hansen on MeWe. So come join us. Parlor, we're Victor Davis Hansen. And I'm sorry, on Facebook, we have The Morning Cup. Uh, at Victor VD, VDH's Morning Cup. So uh, please join us at a, whatever your favorite social media is so that you can get announcements for when we have new articles on the website. Um, Victor, so I was going to ask you as the last thing here on our show, I know that we've talked about the crime rate among Blacks is just skyrocketing, and I feel sorry for their communities. And, but no it's something that we can't talk about. I know you every time and you just said it before the 
advertisement that, you know, oh, I got to be careful. And and that may or may not be true. But what, what damages the fact that people feel like they can't talk about it doing? Well, we don't analyze it. So 50% or more of the Black community is doing fine. If you look at that that percentage and their middle and upper middle class and aggregate black wealth in America, if you were to use such a term, is larger than any country in Africa, GDP, accumulated wealth. So start with that. But uh, if you look at the number of people in the black community that are between 14 and 30 years of age, and you look at that demographic, and then you look at the FBI crime statistics on violent assault, murder, rape, you get into about 50 to 55%, depending on the violent crime, committed by about 5% of the population, okay? So they're 10 times overrepresented. It's not black men, you know, 50. 60. It's not black woman, women, 38. It's black males between 14 or 12 and 30. It's a very small percentage of the U.S. population, and they commit the majority of violent assaults. Okay, so that would be something that you think that could be addressed. And we know why that happens. We know it's because 75% of black children are born out of wedlock that about 70% of father, black fathers uh, are not married to the mothers of their children. So you have a large group of people, black males, that are not being raised by fathers and they don't have a dual income steady familial situation. Then you add in the force multiplier in this perfect storm, that a large number are in urban areas, the Baltimore's, the St. Louis, the New Orleans, New York, so Washington, LA, Detroit, Chicago, except, okay. And then you add in the matrix that the schools are awful. They're run by political hacks of these big city machines. They're unionized teaching faculty. They're incompetent and they're politicized. So you can't criticize them because when Rahm Emanuel's tried to shut them down, they said this left wing guy was a racist. So you're not going to be able to do that. And the white community that uh, tolerated this segregation has fled. They won't put their kids in those schools, but they won't allow them to have academies and charter schools either. And they're big pro teaching. And so you add all of that up and then you have this cultural matrix so is a LeBron James, is an Oprah, or any of them saying, look, Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Louis Farrakhan, we have a problem. Now I say we, I'm very careful when I say we, because they say they. You turn on Joy Reid, or you listen to Don Lamont, or you listen to any of these black, they talk about white, 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 as if 220 million white people in the United States have identical views, as I said earlier, as if Victor Hansen and Gavin Newsom are bros. Uh, <laughs> no, that's what they think. And so I if know, you're going to go know. down that collective stereotypical role, then you can say they as well, the black community has a problem that 5% of that 
the U.S. population is committing 50 to 55 percent of these crimes. Okay. And there, and we said that it was because of the breakup of the black family, probably caused by white liberals, as Tom Sowell has, put, has pointed out eloquently in the 1950s, of the whole uh, idea of the hyper-masculine black uh, heroic male who doesn't have to marry the mother of his children, whatever that is, or the entitlement the toxic role of entitlements of empowering illegitimacy and single uh, family households, whatever. But you also have this cultural message. And what you get from rap music and hip hop, and I've listened to the lyrics, I've looked at it, is misogynist. It is anti-police. It is kill the pig, blank, blank the whole, this stuff. And then you look at the athletes or the celebrities, and none of them are saying our community has to, to self-police itself because we are looking at ourselves as a community. And we talk about white, white, white being responsible. But right now, racism is not the problem. The, race, the problem is the inner city schools and the breakup of the black family and the glorification of hyper-masculinity that results in promiscuity, illegitimacy lack of marriage and violence and we glorify violence and you put all of that together the schools the family problems and the popular culture and no one i mean you don't have a barbara jordan or you don't have a bayard rustin or you you know you don't have people in the black and the tom soul like you used to that were i mean jackie rob compare jackie robinson to lebron james I mean, he was an ultimate sportsman. He was an integration. Not that he wasn't tough and he he spoke out against racism, but he wasn't a pampered creation of white liberalism like a Colin Kaepernick. He wasn't a victim, even though he was a victim because he was treated terribly or satchel. All of. And so my point is that. So you have this phenomenon now and nobody will talk about it because to talk about it is racist. I think it not to talk about it is racist because basically the upper black um, middle class and the wealthy black class, and they are in the millions along with our bicoastal white liberal elite, don't want any part of it. So they move away. They say, don't you dare criticize Lori Lightfoot or you don't say anything about Karen Bass, or you don't talk about the mayor of New Orleans, or you don't criticize the Senate candidate in South Carolina that said she's sick of white folks or the Pentagon diversity officer. So what I'm getting at is there's no there's no criticism of an inordinate black crime rate among this demographic. Okay. And If you are Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley and you talk about white rage, white rage, white rage, white rage in the military, and every night you're Joy Reid and Don Lamont, you're talking about white rage, white privilege, and then you're on The View and you're saying, you know, if you have a nickname or this, you attack, and they're just hyper-racializing everything, or you're Michelle Obama and every six weeks you wander off out of your mansion portico and you start mouthing off about racism, racism, or your Meghan Markle, all these very affluent, privileged, hothouse plants, that filters down, especially after George Floyd's, that filters down. And yeah. there is these, and then you add the final tessera and the sick mosaic, and that is what? That is the George Soros state, city, regional attorneys that follow critical race theory and critical legal theory that say that all laws are construct 
and they are created by wealthy, privileged white people, and they have no natural correspondence with human nature. And you put all that toxic mixture and you get this sense on the street that if I commit a crime, I'm not going to be arrested. If rarely I'm arrested, I'm not going to be indicted. If even very rarely I'm indicted, I'm not going to be convicted. If rarely, 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 rarely I'm convicted, I'm not going to be incarcerated. If rarely, 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 rarely incarcerated, I'm not going to be in jail very long. And that <laughs> is destroyed deterrence. There is no deterrence. Yeah. So we have a guy with an axe that goes and terrorizes people. He's out. We have a, a guy who kicks a, almost kicks an Asian woman to death. We have a guy in San Francisco that runs across the street and tackles an Asian man almost and kills him. We have people that push them in the subways. We have a jogger in Memphis, a young woman who's raped and murdered. We have a woman uh, at a crossroads at a rail crossing that is murdered, just shot. We had a young white guy walking, I think he was in Temple in Philadelphia. And guess what? A guy just executed him on the street. And we had a woman and her teenage daughter who were carjacked. We had an Asian woman that was run over by a carjacker. We have the Wawa. You know, think of that scene of civilization where you have all of these African-American teens that go in and they're all they're not starving and they're stealing things that if you look at the parking lot, they're littered on the street and you have a, a trifecta. You have civilization crumbling as they destroy this store out of just nihilism. Then you have this sincere young woman goes, well, I want my sandwich as if. I'm going to be right there where the Goths and the Vandals in Rome, and I want to make sure that I'm in the form and everything's working <laughs> as everybody's <laughs> stealing, and she wants her sandwich. And then the third element is a woman doing the sexual simulation, twerking on top of a cabinet in front of everything. It's a, it's civilization. It's Lord of the It's in ruins. It's Nobody very sad. Yeah. yeah. And so what's going to happen is this, that it's already happening. So I know a lot of left-wing people. I kid them all the time. And they are worried because when they look at the Memphis jogger or they look at the man that was executed in Philadelphia or the woman or kid that were uh, carjacked or the woman that was kidnapped or the guy in San Francisco that was walking down in Berkeley and they just executed, they were all African-American versus white. And they understand that while that was a very rare phenomenon in which African-Americans five times were more likely to attack and kill white people than white people were African-Americans, that still comprised only about 7% or 8% of violent crime. That is interracial crime. So their attitude was, well, it's rare and it gets hyped up by racists and I'm just going to discount. But now they're starting to see that this crime is starting to be weaponized and politicized because, as I said, it's filtering down to the street and it's almost like it's a repertory act. So when an African-American young man walks down the street and a white man, a white student is walking by and, feel, and he turns around and shoots him and blows his brains out, or uh, a woman sitting at a crossroads, I mean, at a crossing, rail crossing, and somebody walks up and blows her brains out, our young woman's not harming anybody, and he waits for her like a predator and rapes her and kills her. Or I can go on with the knockout game or the attacks on Hasidic Jews or the kicking and stomping of uh, Asians. It's, it's inordinately black, and nobody will talk about it. But people are starting to say, you know what? 
this is now outside the inner city and it's outside the inner city because the left uh has legitimized it and they have contextualized it and they see it as repertory and it's a result of white privilege and it doesn't address the fact that it's interracial hatred it's hatred of people on the basis of their race and when you have the diversity czar for education in the pentagon in the pentagon say that she doesn't like white people and she's sick of listening to white people and you have the african-american secretary of defense and the so-called white chairman of the joint chiefs and they're telling us that white rage and they're going to go through the ranks when there is no data that there's this epidemic of white rage but there is data right in their face that this person who's supposed to be the police needs policing their own yeah. diversity person is an abject racist or the candidate for South Carolina Democratic Senator, what is she? she she's right. She just spurts out this white venom. And so the elite, the elite, it's coming from the elite. African-American community keeps doing this, keeps doing this. It's white privilege, white privilege, white privilege. When the largest number of people below the poverty line, not by percentage, but in actual numbers are white. And the African-American elite hang with the white elite. They don't see the, the very poor white population. And you keep telling that white population, you tell the guy that served three terms in Afghanistan, whose dad was uh, wounded in the first Gulf War, whose grandfather lost a leg in Vietnam, that he's a racist. When he, as I keep saying, he dies at double his numbers in Afghanistan. Around. You just keep saying it. Well, there's going to be a reaction. And the reaction, I think, is coming in November. And it's not just going to be among white liberals who are afraid that they're, that the consequences of their own ideology, they're no longer exempt. They don't have the money. They're not, you know, they're not Mark Zuckerberg or his sister or they're not, they're not the Google bunch. And they created this. And the middle class, the upper white middle class lives in these cities. And this crime is starting to go into the suburbs, the carjackings, the smashing grabs. They're starting to go into a little nicer neighborhood than San Francisco, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, Malibu, robberies, uh, following people home, stealing. And they're attacking white liberals. Mm. And they don't have the ability to shield themselves. And they created this by contextualizing it and excusing it and apologizing for it with these weird theories, you know, critical legal theory. And it's it's coming to a head because a, a society is sustained by only four or five things. You have to have fuel to move, whether it's a horse or what. We don't have fuel. It's too expensive can't pay $200 to fill up your diesel truck and go anywhere or 150 for gas. You got to have cheap food. You can't have cheap food if you keep demonizing farmers, canceling water projects, saying pesticides are going to be banned, no more organophosphites, no more nitrogen, you know, artificial chemical fertilizers. You need food. You need you need police and security or you're a tribe you're living on the Danube about 500 AD, right? And you don't have safety here. I'm not sure you have uh, deterrence abroad after Afghanistan and the Russian invasion and what China is talking about, Taiwan, and what uh, Iran is talking about, a bomb. And if you don't have security and you don't have fuel and you don't have food, 
and you don't have shelter. And we've got almost a million or over a million homeless people and housing is going down. Then you don't have civilization. If you don't have civilization, then you don't have art. You don't have scientific research. You don't have vaccinations. You don't have anything. But it was the civilization is defined as the ability to live one more day. That means you're not spending 95% of your time worrying about food and shelter and security and movement, fuel, you know, wood for the fire or, you know, grass for your horse. And we solved all those problems in the West, you know, in the 19th and 20th century. We freed up millions, billions of hours to have so-called civilization, opera, music, etc., great art. But if you destroy those elements, then you have no civilization. And that's what's happened. If you look at our food supply chains in danger, the fuel supplies are deterrence. The police are non-existent in many places. The Pentagon is politicized. The FBI is turned rogue. It's an enemy of the people. And you don't have any safety. We're in a criminal epidemic and we're losing civilization. At some point, somebody's going to say, we're losing civilization and we've got yeah. to address this. We've got to open up Anwar. We've got to build pipelines. We're not in utopia yet. We're not going to burn wood like the Germans. We're not going to open up heat rooms where all the old people get together and their body heat saves them from freezing. To death. We're not going to do that. We're not going to go back to a pre-modern existence. So we're going to do this and we're going to get a military and we're going to go down the ranks of 400 generals. And we're going to say, are you going to create deterrence? Do you believe on putting artillery shells on the target? Do you have a record that your air wing always makes the landing on the carrier? I don't want to hear about whether you're woke. I don't want to hear your views on transgender. I want to know if you're going to kill the enemy and deter him. And we'll get back to that or we'll not succeed as a civilization. And we'll get police and we're going to say, if you take an axe in your hand, and you threaten people and tear people up, you throw a person in a subway and kill them, you shoot, you rape a young Jack, you're never going to come out of prison. And I don't care if we have to build, you know, thousands of prison cells because civilization's at, at stake. And that's what we're going to come to if this continues. And so we need people to speak out against it. We need to have people, I don't mean just in a punitive sense, we need LeBron James to go into the inner city because people seem to listen to him and say, please, if you're going to have sexual relations and father and child, marry the mother. Please provide a stable environment. We need Al Sharpton to go in there and say, you know what? We're going to have a meritocracy. We're going to fire any teacher that doesn't teach what they're supposed to. We're going to get rid of all of this therapeutic curriculum and go back to language, history, philosophy, math, science. And we're going to get policemen. We don't care what color the policemen are, but they're going to create a tranquil environment. So a person in the inner city has the same freedom of choices as somebody in Malibu. And, if, and that that's what we have to do. And, and I don't see any of these leaders capable of doing it. Yeah, I don't see it either. And, and I'm what I just said will be taped and I'll get it as sure as the sun rises. Because you see, the rewards are not for saying what I just said. The rewards are for saying that what you just said is racist when it's not. Yeah. And virtue signaling and being, you know, Oprah's point is not to make sure there's wonderful schools in Chicago or that somebody 
who's a lower middle class, white or Asian or African American in Oakland can walk without being killed. It's to get, it's to stay in that Montecito mansion. And keep keep the myth of her being a victim going. She has to. She has to. Absolutely. Because that's the essential to her success. The same thing with Meghan Markle. If she doesn't have the white queen or the white Charles or whatever it is to say she's victimized, that she takes it to the bank, what is she? She's a person. And a person is as good or bad as their achievement. And the sad thing about all this is in the black community it shows the same rate of decline as the white community. So when you look at the level of acting or singing, I mentioned Otis Redding versus rappers. I mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates compared to Tom Soul. Um, but it's it's even worse in the white community. We just talked about acting. But when you look at, in my little narrow, tiny field of classical, classical scholarship, and I look at some of the, Jeffrey Dason Quah, or the work of Donald Kagan, or even philologist I didn't agree with, Kenneth Dover, or A.W. Gom, and I look at the stuff that's published now, it's pathetic. It's pathetic. And same thing with almost everything. So it, it, it's a, a symptom. Anytime you, you, as a society, you say, we've reached utopia, the food, the shelter, the safety, the national security, the housing, it's our birthright. It's automatic. We deserve it. We don't care who makes it. They're the stupid Morlocks, but we have time now to criticize them. And they don't pay attention to essentials. You end up like, you know, the lotus eaters in Europe. Yeah, sure. I, wokeism is definitely regressive rather than progressive with civilization. It's, it's, yeah. it's the idea that you have to have radical egalitarianism as defined by an elite. And if it's not radical egalitarian, then the elite, not subject to the consequences of their own ideology, has the right and needs the power to force those deemed more fortunate to give over to people less fortunate because it has to be due to culpability. That's a sick, ancient doctrine. And every time that doctrine has put up its serpent head, it has bit and destroyed and infected and poisoned a society whether it's Maoist or Stalin or Lenin or National Socialist in Germany or the commie socialist Mussolini. He was a fascist, but he started out as a communist and everywhere. And yeah. That's, and, uh, oh, go ahead. It goes back to Plato and Pythagoras. They, they were sort of the philosophers of enforced equality with a, with, Albeit with a guardian or platonic guardians that would be not subject. They had to get Al Gore perks and John Kerry perks to be able to talk down to people and be, you know, get their private jets and yachts and stuff. Yeah. Well, Victor, I'm going to have to wind it up here because we've gone, we've gone a long time today. So hopefully everybody enjoyed it. And we thank all of our listeners for listening in. And thank everybody for listening. I appreciate it once more. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hansen, and we're signing off. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. 
On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.